I look at it this way. I think a lot of people will lose all their money. A lot of people will lose 50%. I hope I will only lose, say, 15 to 20%. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with macroeconomist Dr. Mark Faber. If you haven't yet watched part one of this discussion with Mark, where he explains why he thinks a cascade of systemic shocks, financial, economic, geopolitical, and social lie ahead, then head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Mark also explains why he expects most people will lose most of their wealth in the coming disruption, and he shares his outlook on how investors can best protect themselves from that damage. So be sure to stick around for that. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Mark Faber. All right, so so folks who have have been watching are saying, okay, look, um, Mark has created, uh, you know, painted a. A relatively gloomy uh, outlook for our current prospects, which maybe isn't a surprise coming from the guy who writes the gloom, boom, doom report. Um, you talked about how, uh, you know, there's there's the potential that um, asset prices could could continue to go down perhaps a lot to finally begin to wake people up here. So the people watching this channel are regular investors. Um, I would say that they're probably in violent agreement with much of what you've said here in terms of your outlook and um, are wondering, okay, uh, how do I navigate then what's coming here? Um, what, what is your market outlook from here? Do you, do you truly think that the bear market that we're currently in is not over or lower prices ahead, or do you have a different view? And then can we talk about some asset classes or strategies that you think the little guy might want to consider in this environment? Yes, I wanted to ask you the same questions, actually, <laughs> because... Uh, nobody knows for sure. You know, as I said, the Bank of England blinked. And when things became tough, they're fighting inflation. But then they stepped into the bond market to support it. So who knows? Uh, but my view is, I think we are in a situation where an investor has to ask himself, okay, I agree to some extent with Mark. I may think that it's not going to be as bad as he says, but it could be worse and this and that. And uh, that asset prices will go down. So how do I hedge? Now, the only hedging mechanism that I think makes sense is diversification. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I look at uh, today's performances of markets, and assets, uh, the, the asset class that went up is oil and gas, energy. Uh, the best performing is the one that was hated the most by the Greens, coal. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny thing, you know, when you think about it. They have all the negative things about coal and it's been performing wonderfully. And there are lots of coal stocks that are up four or five times in one year. Anyway, uh, I, I think I described briefly <coughs> how inflation touches different sectors of the economy at different times. So we had the asset inflation 1981, 
do recently. Now we may have consumer price inflation, which then leads to higher interest rates structurally. Mm -hmm. These are long cycles. They can last 20 years. So let's assume that interest rates go up for a long time, like between 1942 and 1980. Then uh, you can have rising earnings and you can have an economy that actually moves sideways. Uh, and uh, stocks in real terms lose their value. That was the market in the US between 66 and 1982 was essentially flat. It didn't go up, but it was essentially flat. If you include the dividends, you didn't do all that badly because the dividends were relatively high, which is not the case now. But uh, in real terms, inflation adjusted. And that was reflected in the weakness of the US dollar. Uh, stocks went down by 70%, okay? So you take a peak somewhere 2018, 2019, 2020, whenever you want to take the peak, and not every stock peaked out the same day. Uh, the last ones to peak out was uh, fund stocks like Apple, they peaked out in January of this year. Mm -hmm. But most stocks peaked out. The meme stocks, the SPACs and so forth, they peaked out in January, February, March 2020. So by, no, sorry, they peaked 21. out in 2021. Right. So in uh, December 2021, many stocks had already peaked much earlier. And you can follow this. If you look at the number of new highs in the market and at the advanced decline line and at the number of stocks above the 200-day moving average and so forth and so on. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, different assets peak out at different times. And my sense is that we are in a period of uh, lengthy, unattractive environment for assets. Whether you own real estate, the government is going to F you because they're going to increase taxes on real estate or on transactions. Or in the socialist uh, states in the US, they'll impose rent controls. Mm -hmm. Rent controls is for the business owner, for the owner of, a, of say, uh, apartment buildings, uh, the worst, because his cost of maintenance go up, but you can't charge more to his tenants. Right, it caps your earning potential, but your costs are not capped. Yes, yeah. and uh, the people that run the, the governments nowadays, they're bloody interventionists. That's the biggest problem. Someone recently wrote about Liz Truss, and she's in good company, the new premier in England. He said, the problem is she's not very intelligent but she thinks she's intelligent. That is a, a feature of all politicians. They all think they're smart. They all think they should intervene in the economy. I mean, Biden, you look at him, he intervenes continuously and says continuously something about things he has no clue about. I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump, but to be fair to Trump, he reduced regulation. This is the only thing he did. 
All right. Well, Mark, so if we are looking at a future where uh, assets are going to be compromised for a long time, um, what is the little guy to consider here? Yes. I mean, I would say, you know, the little guy is crude anyway, because it's more difficult to, for him to implement some strategies than for people who have a lot of money, who can afford lawyers and accountants and tax uh, structures. You understand? Someone who has a billion dollars, for sure, he can arrange for him to pay very little tax. Or no tax at all. Right. The small right. guy who has a small business, how can he have access to the best lawyers, tax consultants, auditors, and so forth? No, he hasn't got the access. No, and as but you probably I'd like know, to say one thing. If I yeah. say I'm an international person, I'm Swiss, I had and still have my business based in Hong Kong, but I live in Thailand. Now, I want to have some assets in Thailand because I live here. Because I think maybe one day I can't remit money from the US to Thailand, or I can't remit money from Switzerland to Thailand and so forth and so on. So I have some assets here, not because I have great confidence in Thailand, but I have to say it's a military government and I feel much freer under my military government here than under the Swiss democratically elected government in Switzerland. Wow. And I don't say this easily. I mean, I've been thinking about it, but anyway, so I have some money here. First of all, the property is not mine. It's in my wife and daughter's name. And, but the bank account is in my name and the portfolio is in my name. And I have some properties in Vietnam and some in stock investments in Vietnam. But uh, the logistic is the custody is in Vietnam. It's not Vietnamese stocks held through an American bank. You understand? This I want to tell your viewers, if you want a geographical uh, diversification, you can't hold all your assets in one bank and they have own shares in Brazil and some in Russia and some there. You have to have the custody in different geographical locations. Okay, great point. Can you just elaborate a little bit why you're making that recommendation is because you're afraid of... of country risk going after those assets well, and keep them all in one country or you don't know what the nutcases in governments will do and in NATO uh, suddenly if a country trades say with Russia uh, they will be suddenly put on a blacklist or something like this right, right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you but but this did happen so American ADR holders who own shares in Gazprom and Luke Oil and all the major you know uh, publicly traded uh, Russian, you know, big companies, um, those all have been frozen. Yes, correct. They have a precedent. Okay. And I, the, the second point I want to make, you know, I just, uh, a friend of mine, he sent me the, the front page of a Bloomberg, I think it's Business Week or whatever it is, and it shows the dollar getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Whenever I see headlines on front pages, 
uh, it's kind of a contrarian signal. Makes you think now, there's time for a reversal? You understand? Nobody has yet told me, hey, how do you, will you uh, recycle all these batteries that will come on stream and the blades of windmills that they want to drive uh, or supply the energy from in Germany and so forth? And nobody has told me what will really happen when the dollar will begin to weaken considerably. Now, you may say, Mark, don't be stupid. The dollar will never be weak. Okay, then I'm stupid to think about it. But in my view, the likelihood that the dollar will one day be uh, kind of the currency that nobody wants is in my opinion quite likely i'm not telling you that it's happening it will happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow i don't know from what point it will happen but one day the dollar will become very weak and so, at that stage it will become very interesting what happens to interest rates and what happens to the economy and so forth and so on so let's let's tug at that just for a moment here before we begin to wrap things up. So um, we, we've talked a lot about the strengthening dollar this year. We've we've had Brent Johnson, who's the developer of the dollar milkshake theory, on the program, and and he thinks in the short term. I mean, yeah, there, there probably could be some pullbacks, but he thinks the dollar is going to be strong for a bit longer. He hates being the face of this theory because he doesn't like the dollar. <laughs> He's just aware of of the dynamics that are pushing it up right now. He does think at some point it will peak like you do. So if the dollar does start sort of a secular weakening, what investment opportunities does that open up? You know, you would think things like the precious metals and, and, and maybe some other commodities and hard assets that have been pushed down of late because of the strong dollar might finally get a chance to rise again. But, but what do you think? Well, I mean... Uh... I don't want to sound overly bullish and I don't want to sound overly bearish, but if I look at the US market compared to the emerging markets and compared to European markets, uh, it has outperformed just about everything over yeah. the last uh, 11 years. And uh, emerging markets have performed very badly relative to the US since 2015, some a bit later, some a bit earlier. I think that in emerging economies, that's my observation. I'm not bullish about Thailand, but I'm realistically looking at the economy the advantages it had and it has and the disadvantages. I think in Thailand, the valuations are okay. You know, you buy today, maybe they'll drop another 30%, but eventually they'll be higher. Mm -hmm. You buy today the semiconductors in the US, I'm not sure they'll be much higher 10 years from now. Because I've seen Cisco, Cisco, NVIDIA was like Cisco in, nine, in year 99, 2000. Yep. Never recovered. And so I think that in emerging economies, when I look at Latin America, 
And you said at the beginning, Mark, there are these and these and these factors that may have a negative impact. I said, maybe all of them come into play. Mm -hmm. Then I would say Latin America is probably geographically the place that could maybe stay out of World War Three, World War Four, you know, of a major conflict. So to have some assets in Argentina and Brazil may not be so stupid. Okay. So, you and know, these Jeremy... markets are really depressed. Earlier this year, I wrote about Turkey, that the market was incredibly cheap because the stock market didn't collapse in local currency, but the currency had collapsed. Right. And this year, actually, Turkish stocks, you can look up the, T, the Turkish fund listed in New York is in dollars terms. It's up like 25%, 30%. Oh, all right. One of the few assets that went up this year. Yeah. So I know that that a peer of yours, Jeremy Grantham, has been uh, advising people to look towards the emerging markets as, as something that should come out of what's coming, he thinks, pretty well on a relative basis. Sounds like you're, you're somewhat like-minded with that. Yes. I mean, uh, I also think in China, there are now some good companies that are reasonably priced. Vietnam is the country that is interesting. <coughs> it has essentially a strong economy. The economy is doing well. The stock market has been hit very hard. Because there was excess speculation before. But now I think it will go lower. But I believe equally uh, there are some good companies that are reasonably priced for the first time in many years. years. In Indonesia, you have reasonably priced companies. Now, in a depression, uh, the expression reasonably priced. Uh, has a different meaning because in a depression, when earnings contract, the dividend will have to be cut. Right. You know, Hong Kong shares are dirt cheap. Dirt cheap. So let me ask you this then. So there's the old expression that when the U.S. gets the sniffles, the rest of the world gets pneumonia, right? It sounds like you think that the U.S. still has the majority of its reckoning ahead of it right now from an asset yes. standpoint. So yes. is, is your sort of general outlook here, um, the, patience is going to serve today's investor well, um, both in terms of perhaps getting lower prices and better valuations in the future in the U.S. But of course, if the U.S. stumbles, even though Hong Kong is dirt cheap right now, it might get dirtier and cheaper you know, Correct. as it, it reacts to the U.S. shockwaves. <laughs> yes. That, you know, is... But I look at this way because I'm an asset holder. And uh, I may be wrong because I don't have major hedges. My hedge is that I have a relatively large cash position which includes bonds that mature within a year or two. But I look at it this way. I think a lot of people will lose 
all their money. A lot of people will lose 50%. I hope I will only lose, say, 15 to 20%. All right. I've, I've sort of said this before, um, that the, the strategy for what's coming, the best strategy for what's coming might be a mindset that is, be prepared to lose money. Your objective is just to try to lose a lot less than everybody else. Sounds like that's yours too. Yes, I think this is uh, in a asset price collapse like the 30s. Uh, I don't think many people made money. Uh, there was a big opportunity to make money in the 20s and 30s. And uh, I, all, I also say this today in illegal activity, smuggling, black markets. Because if you think about it, the government intervenes more and more. Don't think in the world that government officials are like angels and all the businessmen are evil <laughs> and all the businessmen cheat and uh, do funny things, but the government is honest. Not at all. If you look at the fight of the struggle between the mafia and the government uh, from the times of the prohibition until today, well, maybe uh, the government officially has won, or I could argue, no, <laughs> the mafia has taken over the government. Mm. You understand? Yep. It's become very, very corrupt. Uh, don't believe uh, for a second that in Western democracies, the governments are nice people. No, they're all utterly corrupt they all and um, they they all take money and and you know what i'm, I'm not going to argue kind of the point of, of of the criminal faction um uh but but for sure we can just look at the data and say that uh so much of of the government is captured by industry when you look at the massive power of the lobbyists and whatnot and, <laughs> and i'm not i'm not I'm a total fan of capitalism like you are, Mark, but when the power concentrates to the level where the powerful corporations are then influencing politics to write the laws and the regulations more and more to their advantage, that becomes very problematic because it's no longer a free market. Yeah, of course not. But why is the government so big? Because the socialists wanted to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reaction is for the corporations to say, okay, doesn't disturb us. We're going to F them. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, Mark, I could keep talking to you forever. We've already gone way over the time that I promised we would, <laughs> um, but I think people really got their money worth, money's worth this time. Well, Thank you I so much. <laughs> Clearly, there's a lot that's going to unfold from here that we're going to want to bring you back and have you give updates on as a lot of the dominoes that you've mentioned here begin to really topple. Um, but until then, I just want to thank you so much for people, for the very few who were not already well aware of you before this interview and who would like to go learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, first of all, I wanted to add one more sentence. I think do. The, the price of gold and silver and platinum have been weak and uh, there's no interest in among retailers to buy it. In other words, it's an investment that is neglected. It's not the best investment, but it is an avenue 
to lose less money, to have something in uh, your custody, but you have to decide where you want to keep it, under your mattress or in your garden or in a safety box and so forth. This is a decision you have to take. But basically, I would use this weakness to accumulate some, which I buy every month's gold for the last 40 years. But uh, aside from that, uh, if they want to know about my work, then they should uh, watch Wellseon, no, <laughs> your not. interviews, and uh, they should go to my website, gloomboomdoom.com. All in one word, gloomboomdoom.com. Um, well, Mark, look, when we edit this, we'll put the link to Gloom, Doom, Boom uh, report okay, up on the screen here so folks know where to go. Also, okay, just because great. you mentioned it, um, for those that aren't aware, uh, Wealthion has a free guide that sort of walks you through the options and the rationale on the different ways, the different most common ways to purchase and store precious metals. So if you're just beginning your journey, just go read this free report. It's just at wealthion.com slash how to buy. And with that, Mark, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and so many of your insights and really look forward to having you back on again in the future. Thank you very much for your time. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just following your wonderful lead. Thanks so much, Mark. Bye-bye. All right. Well, now is the time on the program where we welcome in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory partners of Wealthion. Now, you guys might notice I'm in a different background here. Uh, I'm actually down in New Orleans at the New Orleans Investment Conference, and you're going to see uh, Mike Preston in a moment, and he's got the same background. He's, he's down here with me in a different room. Um, but uh, I'm joined as usual by John Lodra and Mike Preston, the two lead partners from New Harbor Financial. Guys, it's always a journey uh, when you have uh, Mark Faber on the uh, on the program, and he took us on yet another great adventure today uh, through all of his historical and uh, you know highly experienced uh, and seasoned uh, market perspective. Uh, he does not disappoint. So, um, John, why don't we why don't we kick this off with you? Um, let's talk about some of your guys' key takeaways from the discussion with Mark, and then we'll get into what the markets are doing right now and, and what changes you guys might be making in your portfolio as a result. So I'll hand it to you. Sure. Thanks, Adam. And uh, I wish I was down in New Orleans with y'all. should be a fun conference and hopefully get to enjoy the city. Uh, always interesting to, to see Mark talk. He's definitely a, a man of lots of opinion and perspective on a lot of different things. I kind of kind of feel like it's uh, was talking to a German Ernest Hemingway or something. It had the the mood lighting, and he could probably tell a story about travels and all sorts of things. <laughs> um, but the, the, uh, the, the beer and alcohol to go along with it. There you go. There the you beard go. and alcohol to go along. De with it. Definitely a, a, a unique style there that you gotta you gotta appreciate. Um, but but really, uh, obviously, a man that's got lots of perspective and lots of uh, experience in, in markets and economies and very uh, willing to speak candidly about a lot of things. And, and I appreciate that. We appreciate about that about him. Um, you know, he talked about, you know, a lot of things we, we, we've repeated and many of your guests, the, the, the world economy definitely has decelerated uh, and has been decelerating globally since about uh, 2018, 2019 and in a lot of different metrics. Um, yet earnings uh, are still projected, uh, we think quite naively and, and uh, very much um, historically uh, uh, synonymous with, with analysts' reluctance to uh, drop earnings estimates, even though there's quite evidently uh, a slowdown. And the slowdown has been made very clear this year. Uh, even with large companies themselves reporting 
and warning about uh, drops in, in in profit forecasts. Yeah, analysts are still projecting increased earnings for this year and next year. So there's a crash course, a collision course, I guess we think with market realities and and the forward estimates of analysts. Um, you know, consumption has 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 taken a hit. Um, mostly because inflation, you know, people's pocketbooks are, are getting, getting hurt. Um, and you can't, you can't buy things and spend when you don't have the resources. And I uh, just saw a um, uh, press release today. I think it was uh, PepsiCo um, uh, reported a 17% increase in their costs, um, which, you know, that's kind of a bellwether for consumption, right? Um, the, the products that PepsiCo um, sells is is everyday kind of staple foods that, and and products that that people, you know, hits them in the pocketbook. So, um, bottom line is he, he crazy. Just interrupt for a sec, but you know, I mean, PepsiCo has lots of products, but when you think about kind of their core soda products, I mean, the main inputs are sugar and water, right? Yeah. And to think, hey, if sugar and water alone are going up seventeen percent, you know, <laughs> what are other companies that deal with a lot more material, you know, type inputs dealing with? Absolutely. And that's, I mean, it's just another, it's just a, a very vivid uh, example of how inflation is truly permeating the system. Uh, I think consensus forecast for tomorrow's, uh, this week's CPI print is 8.1% uh, uh, year over year growth. Um, so there, there seems to be a continual mismatch between the official, you know, um, CPI stats and, and what folks on the streets um, are seeing, right? Um, Bottom line is, uh, Mark conclu concludes with what we've been saying, that valuations are still uh, tremendously high by historical standards and uh, running headlong into, you know, um, probably a profits recession, if not a, a bro much broader economic recession. And uh, uh, we, like him, think there's, uh, uh, it's a, it's, it, we're, we're in a, still in a pattern here that the, the, the mid to longer term um, pathway for for asset prices is likely to be very very disappointing, um, but we've been saying for a long time, uh, even in a bear market, it's, they're they're oftentimes uh, punctuated by um, very sharp uh, moves higher uh, that are often short lived. Uh, we think we could be on the verge of one of those um, soon, maybe not right away, and we'll probably talk later. We we have taken some you know, modest uh, uh, action to kind of position for that with very diff, uh, tight hedges. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll stop there and plenty to talk about, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the secular and the cyclical. Like you said there, John, um, you can be in a secular bear market, but have it punctuated by these, these uh, relief rallies. And we've talked about this a lot in the past recent videos. Um, and Mike, I think you guys might be taking on a tactical long um, to maybe, you know, benefit in case there is a relief rally coming up here from these oversold levels. Um, but before before we get to talking about the markets and what you guys are specifically doing here, I do want to stay at the secular level for a moment. So Mark made the quote, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money, right? And, and he and I had that back and forth about, you know, maybe maybe the right strategy here is for everybody, every investor to get their mind around, hey, maybe we're entering a period where I'm not gonna make a lot of money. In fact, I might lose money. My goal is just to lose an awful lot less relative to everybody else, right? Maybe that might be the best that we can we can hope for if if the, the dominoes that Mark thinks might fall, fall from here. Um, 
Mark has been a big advocate for a decade plus of a well-diversified portfolio. He did reiterate that here, that he said the diversification is the best way to hedge against the risks that he was talking about here. Um, and I do want to give Mark credit. Um, back coming out of the, you know, 0809 uh, market swoon, um, you know, he had said, "Hey, be diversified." He, he talked about how he largely cut his portfolio into quadrants, and if I remember correctly, it was global equities in one, global uh, credit in the other. I think it was real estate in the third, and then I think it was precious metals in the fourth. And that portfolio ended up doing really well um, for the the following decade. Um, it really did work well. There are a lot of people we know who watched Mark because they were concerned about markets and they were much more conservative. They either stayed in cash um, or they were super heavy precious metals. And I think Mark's well-diversified portfolio beat a lot of those more conservative allocations over the past decade. Um, but as much as Mark is still a fan of diversification, he was saying, hey, now is the time to have large cash reserves. Um, own short-term bonds. Uh, we talked about how really your best asset right now uh, as an investor is the ability to be patient um, and to wait for better valuations and then deploy your capital at much better valuations than we have today. It was sort of Mark you know, saying, hey, I think people are going to lose a lot of money. I think right now, unless you've got a gun to the head that you've got to buy something for some crazy reason, better to, to step back, let the game play out, and then, you know, high probability, there's going to be much better entry points going forward. Um, John, any quick reaction to that before I let Mike jump on it? Yeah, we agree. Um, we're 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 often uh, happy to to say that our, our approach is not to to match market indices up and down, but to outperform on a relative basis by you know stepping aside from risk when it gets extreme and and stepping into it when it becomes less extreme or, or downright uh, unrisky or, or little risk. Um, but that slices both ways. You have to be willing to underperform when markets take on bubble uh, shapes like they have in the last bunch of years, especially last year. And uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we, for good reason, step, stepped aside from a, a much risk taking and that is now paying off. You know, defensiveness is, is certainly being rewarded even if it's only on a relative basis. Um, so that's about all I have to, to add there. Well, yeah, well, that goes back to our old you know, friend, uh, John Hussman and his famous quote about bubble markets, about how they force you to look like an idiot now or an idiot later. And you know, as you just said, you guys, I think, took some slings and arrows over the previous couple of years um, by the people who were happily, fully long, buying the dip, getting rewarded for it by the markets where you guys were worried about excessive valuations and you know calling for prudence uh and and those party goers you know uh felt comfortable sort of thumbing their nose at you while they were making the easy money but now that the tide has gone out and looks like it may continue going out you know they're the ones that are looking you know like the idiots today uh and you guys are looking like today's geniuses all right so mike coming over to you feel free to build on anything that we just talked about there and then i, I want to get to the if i was right the uh the long position that you guys have put on uh to potentially capture um a short-term upside move in the markets should they make one sure hi adam yeah there's a lot of different things i could comment and add on to and i'll try to make it quick the S&P has wiped out all of the you know, 2021 blow off top losses. I'm sorry, gains now. 
with its loss of, of 25% from its uh, January high. So yeah, and, and start, start to interrupt, but as we're talking here, we're basically at the lows of the year now, right? We're, we're, be, we're below the June lows, correct? That's right. We're slightly below the June lows. We're down almost 26% on the S&P. The S&P is now trading roughly where it was in November 2020. 2021 was a blow-off top in everything, not just stocks, everything. And blow-off tops are usually repealed pretty quick. Uh, having said that, though, this top has been relatively controlled and slow so far. The S&P topped in January. The Wheelshare 5000 topped in November of 21. And here we are at least nine months later. And we're down only about 25%. Just as a comparison, in 1929, that market topped maybe five or six weeks before the plunge. And, and, and the Dow lost 49% in two months. 1987, the market topped in September, I believe, about five or six weeks before it ultimately dropped almost 25% in one day. And yet here, we're down 25% over nine or 10 months here in a very slow and controlled fashion. I mean, in fact, I was just looking at the chart. The recent swing high is 43.25, uh, 4,325 on the S&P, about 10% higher. And it's just been a slow stair-step decline. The question here, though, is, is the damage done yet? Have we seen kind of like that panic moment yet. Other markets around the world are, are worse. Emerging markets are down worse. Most of Europe is down worse than the S&P 500, than the U.S. markets. And you know, we think that there's some real risk here. If the market doesn't bounce pretty quickly, that we may see kind of that first mini panic drop. It might be 100, 200, 300 points on the S&P. Uh, I, I don't know. That's what the technical picture looks like to us. We're sitting here just under 3,600. We've been saying for a long time that it looks like by the time the first phase of this bear market is over, we should go down into the low threes, maybe 3,200, 3,300 on the S&P. Obviously, we can't guarantee it, and there's, there's always the chance that we bounce first, but after yesterday's failed bounce and we're sitting there right at the year low, if we don't get a bounce pretty soon, we will have that flush. And no one knows how far that will go. We'll be ready for it. And we'll probably add tactical positions into that. But um, that's the real risk because most people really haven't woken up yet to the downside risk here. Um, I've got, I guess, a few other things that I'd like to say. Um, Mark talked a lot there about politics and, and governments and, and how the new robber barons are the governments and the central banks and that Alexander Hamilton made a mistake. We totally agree with him on that. And, and, and really over the last 25 years, maybe even more, it could probably go back to 1987 when Alan Greenspan stepped in with liquidity after the, the Black uh, uh, Monday crash in October 1987. It's only gotten to be more and more and more and more of the same thing. And really no one's ever checked up on the central banks. I mean, there's this some really softball questions that they get in congressional testimony, but really, I'm not even sure if, if most people that are doing the questioning completely understand what the central banks are doing. And you were talking with Mark there about, well, is, is Jerome Powell, is he a villain? Is he a hero? No one really knows. It does seem like he's trying to do the right thing here by fighting inflation. But just remember that central banks have created the problem over the last couple of decades. And it's pretty ironic that Ben Bernanke got the Nobel Prize in economics yesterday. You know, that's that's a newsworthy event this week. Um, I'll take a pause there. There's lots of other things that, that I could mention, but I'll pause.
All right. I, I was thinking ironic might be a kind way of putting it. Um, a lot of people might might think, um, you know, completely uh, maddening, uh, enraging. I can think of a lot of other comments that that many of our viewers might be thinking. Um, all right. Well, look, I mean, that, that that's all well said. That's one of the reasons why I love to have Mark on the program, um, because he brings the arc of understanding not only just so many, you know, uh, market and economic cycles of his lifetime, but he's such a great student of history that he can bring in the perspective from from where history has played out like this before, but prior to our lifetimes here. So that we need to keep in mind here that, yeah, maybe the exact same script doesn't play out, but it, but it, it it's highly likely to rhyme in important ways. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, one of the things that Mark mentioned um, that so I, I'm here at this New Orleans Investment Conference and. Uh, I would say the mood here is subdued and and slightly optimistic. And what I mean by that is, is at least from this first days uh, of, of speakers that I've seen and the panel that I moderated, um, it seems that people are largely in agreement that there's more pain to come before um, there's there's room to really start hoping and, and to deploy capital in a way that's that's going to see a, a relatively near term return. So um, most of the people here are focused on sort of the hard assets space, but not all of them. Um, but, but especially those in the hard asset space are saying, yeah, it's probably going to get worse for gold and silver for a while, folks, um, you know, especially if the dollar continues rising and especially if um, the Fed hikes to some point of some sort of systemic snap. Um, where that could cause a big market dislocation. And just as we've had in previous major sell-offs, 2008 being the freshest one in people's minds, um, the uh, you know, the precious metals get sold as collateral as margin calls come in, right? And so there's near-term downward pressure on them. Um, so the bad news is sort of, you know, the consensus here is that the trajectory is, is still down. And of course, that's no different from what Mark was saying or what many of the recent guests and wealthy wealthy have been saying. But the, the guys here are saying, you know, there are already beginning to become some pretty good values, at least in the commodity producer space at current valuations. And because they expect prices to, to creep down from here in the near term, they expect those attractive valuations to get even more attractive. And Mark was talking about how he's buying... Uh, uh, you know, precious metals every week or every month, uh, I think you said. Um, and he just sees himself as sort of dollar cost averaging as the prices and the process of bottoming out, right? And of course, that's the smart time to be doing it, right? But as as Americans or Westerners, for some reason, we love to pile into an asset when the price is taking off. Um, and we tend to eschew it when the price is, is low. And of course, if you care about making returns, you really want to do the opposite, right? So I know you guys are big on, uh, well, not big, but you, you one of your largest positions is in the, the precious metal space and you are fans of commodity producers, energy and other types of, of hard assets. Um, do you guys sort of, do you see yourselves potentially taking a page from Mark's book and on, on sort of a, on a dollar cost average basis as the markets keep going down here to start building exposure, you know, because you're not trying to time the bottom, I imagine. You just want to be in the things you want to be in enough, close enough to the point at which they start recovering. John, yeah, I, can, uh, I can take a shot at that, Adam. Um, you know, one of the things that we do is is we use hedging tools typically when we'll enter a position. And that's that's effectively our way of, of inching in, a different way of dollar cost averaging, you might say. 
So for example, um, if we see a, a certain sector that we like from a fundamental standpoint and, and the technicals are shaping up, but we, you know, perhaps we're we're not quite ready to put a full position size on. One way to to uh, do that is is by entering a position but using hedges to effectively lower the position size. And our version of dollar cost averaging would be to uh, remove or or decrease those hedges the, the further that particular holding um, might drop. Okay, so we'll we'll tend to do a full full position size or half position size rather than small drips in, but we'll adjust the effective size from a risk standpoint by using hedges uh, in a dynamic way uh, as the price fluctuates. Okay, um, thanks for describing that. I guess my question is: Is do you see yourself doing more of that? Uh, you know, if prices continue dribbling down from here, or are you still more in sort of a, we just want to be in a wait and see? Because obviously that's the safest path is always to sit on the sidelines. You just give up some potential upside by being completely out of the game. Yeah, they're definitely uh, on our radar. You know, from a from a valuation standpoint, resource stocks are are, are way better valuations than, than broad markets. Um, we're in a tricky situation though, because they can get a lot cheaper, uh, especially with a recessionary environment uh if, if we do enter you know kind of more recessionary kind of mode um so we're, we're 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 watching them very closely um so we're not compelled to to dollar cost average in now but we're, we're definitely watching those sectors uh, very closely and, and we'll start to move into them um in, in a decided way um you know probably with, with some further weakness um and we measure that kind of as as broad markets you know we, we think we're probably in the vicinity, maybe um, another 10% downside, perhaps, but in the vicinity of a, a, a market turning point in a short-term basis. Um, but, um, you know, we've definitely got those on our radar screen, those sectors as as places that we think are compelling to be sh doing our shopping list uh, around. I'll let okay. Mike add to that. Great. If you feel free to add to that, Mike, I just want to flag for folks that, you know, this is one of the reasons why we have you guys on every week, which is, uh, to you know, get, get your current assessment and whatnot. But as you guys get to a decision point in your capital allocation, you know, when you share that, okay, we've been like in this example, hey, we've kind of been monitoring for a while, but now we're seeing something that causes us either to want to start getting in more or to become even more defensive. You know, those are very important for folks. So when you when you hit that next stage, obviously we'll share it with folks here so that they know that you guys are are at a point where it's changing your behavior. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very disciplined. I mean, we pick price targets if we're disciplined to stick with them. I mean, you can never really pick an exact target. We look at ranges. We were looking for the S&P 500 to take out the June lows and go below 3570. It's ironic. It went there yesterday by about a point or two. It triggered our, you know, it triggered our rule and we put on a very hedged position, long, one of the broad stock indexes, in this case, the Russell 2000. It has a little bit more volatility, and uh, we're really trying to capture the option premium, the hedge part of what we're doing. It allows us to be wrong by about close to 10% and uh, still make a profit if we, uh, even if we go nowhere because you capture, you sell premium. And it's not just uh, gold and silver and, and the miners that we want to add to as we see further declines. We think we're likely to see further declines in the market. That's what's so tough about this is that we should bounce from this level. So you, you basically you start to nibble and put a hedge on, but we could, we could see a 1987 type crash as well. 
So we have to start pretty small. We have to sell the premium and have the ability to scale in, adjust the early scales or the, or the option hedges on the early scales and get more committed. The things we want to get more committed in are, are some of the things that Mark talked about. Resource stocks, he mentioned in particular, oil and coal has been doing well, but he also talked about some emerging markets. Emerging markets have incredibly attractive price to earnings ratios. You know, somewhere in the high single digits or low teens, depending upon what country you look at. Right. And he mentioned in particular Thailand. Sorry to interrupt, but that's that's largely because they've been clobbered by this rising dollar, correct? They've been killed by the rising dollar, but they control the flow of commodities to the world, which should really mean something in our book over the next decade. And the dollar's not going to go straight up forever. I, I know it could easily go higher. The charts say it will probably go higher, but the emerging markets are more, more than just uh, uh, you know a play on a reversal of the dollar. They're, they're, it's a valuation play. And so we could even increase our emerging market position. You mentioned that Jer Jeremy Grantham's firm, or the firm that he founded, GMO, uh, has been talking about emerging markets for a long time. It's true, they have, and they put out some nice data that shows they're one of the few pockets of um, you know, stocks that are valued appropriately in the world. So we like gold miners. We like emerging markets. We do like commodity stocks. We're looking for an entry there. We don't really have a big position there now. now obviously, we like a good amount of cash. We're using this cash to tactically layer into the market as we see these further declines. Um, and we, we do still have a, lo a long-term bond position um, in, in, in long-term U.S. Treasury bonds. We think they're drastically oversold, and there's going to be a flight to safety there at some point. And lastly, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't say that we do believe people should have a position in physical gold and silver. And that's outside of this portfolio that we're talking about. Five or 10% of investable assets. Um, we, you know, we think that's a good thing to do. It's a good inflation hedge. It should be a good investment in its own right. And, um, you know, but that's outside of the, the portfolio that we manage in general. All right. Uh, all right, great. Well, look, guys, we'll start to wind it down here just because, um, Mike, you and I get to get down to the conference floor. Um, as we begin to wrap up here, guys, I, I want to share a couple of observations from the conference so far. One is uh, maybe on the frustrating side, which is that uh, so much of the discussion here still is the um, is the Fed. How much more is the Fed going to continue hiking and tightening, and is it going to be able to do what it needs to do and get to get inflation under control, um, or is it going to break something and then be forced to pivot before inflation is really resolved and potentially get stuck in that? tug of war where it's having to tighten again and and you know probably like the back and forth like we saw in the 70s and where i'm going with this is um while this is an investing conference it is still dominated by speculating on what jerome powell and a few people around a table are going to decide to do and my gosh i cannot wait to the day where we on this channel and investment conferences can talk about you know, sectors and specific, you know, companies and look at their financial statements and their prospects and talk about, you know, great investment opportunities where the fundamentals actually are going to drive the price action versus just wondering what the federal funds rate is going to be and everything else is going to drive off of that. Um, on the more positive side, um, I have been stopped uh, by many more people than I expected just walking the halls of this event 
uh, coming up and introducing themselves to me, saying they watch Wealthion, um, and saying very nice things about the channel, which is which is wonderful. And I just you guys are a part of this. I want you to know that that the impact that this channel is having, I think, is oftentimes goes far beyond what we, you know, are aware of, and we're just having these you know relatively informal chats over Zoom here. Um, but the the last guy to talk to me right before I came up here to, to record this with you is a guy from Australia. Uh, who's a financial planner there, um, said that uh, he had a couple of targets that he wanted to meet on this trip, but but getting to meet, you know, me and Wealthion was was one of them. And so it was A, it was an honor to hear that. But also, um, he and I just spent some time talking about potentially uh, driving our Australian viewers who are looking for a like-minded financial advisor, uh, potentially to his firm. There's a lot that needs to be sort of worked out before I, I know whether that's going to be possible or not. Apparently, there's a big sea change that just happened and how us, the Australian regulators um, uh, have structured or, or basically they've made a lot of changes to the regulations for how financial advisors work in Australia. And the dust is kind of settling from that right now. But hopefully, folks, if, you, if you're one of the Australian folks that are watching here, I get emails from you guys every week saying, hey, love John and Mike, love Lance. I can't work with them because I'm in Australia. Boy, if you can find me an Australian advisor, I'd really appreciate it. Well, we might just have had a breakthrough here. So fingers crossed, everybody. Uh, but more importantly, guys, I just want to let you know that, you know, people from Australia that are watching this that cared enough to hop on a plane to come out and learn more about what we do. So thank you guys for contributing to this. Everybody else who's watching, thank you, because, again, you've created this whole movement here. And I, I can't tell you, I, I was at this uh, conference a year ago. Uh, and had a few people recognize me um, and, and talk about Wealthion, but it's a different order of magnitude this year here. And I think that's just a big reflection of this movement that we are all creating together here online. So, uh, John, I'll maybe let you have the last word here as we we dial out. Um, any parting bits of advice to today's investor, given what's happening right now in the markets or what you're hearing from the folks that are calling you up? Just just um, just be really, really cautious. Um, we sound like a broken record here. There, There is an alternative, finally. Um, Short-term cash and treasuries and things like that, very safe things, uh, are yielding appreciable levels of yield right now. Um, you know, we had one-year treasuries, for example, ticking around uh, 4% guaranteed yield if you hold it to, to maturity. Uh, even short-term three-month T-bills are above 3% now. There is an alternative, uh, unlike there there was even earlier this year or most of the past decade when cash was yielding zero. Um, we think there's going to be tremendous opportunity um, uh, as we transition through this reconciling of a bubble. And, and we still are very, very um, pointed in calling this a bubble. We're still in a bubble. We, we very much believe so. The data speaks to it in terms of valuations. And um, this is a time to be patient and, and be grounded in, in perspective and data, not um, false hopes. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are big things happening right now. Um, the UK, for example, is, is, is perhaps a, a, a central bank policy error unfolding be, between our eyes. And, they, and to be clear, the error is not in what they're doing now, but in letting interest rates be as low as they were. Um, you know, basically the bond market in the UK has revolted. The 30-year the um, gilt, which is the UK government bond, shot up to 5% yield. Uh, it was down at 3% in September. In September, So that's a big, big move. So the Bank of England had to intervene in an emergency way. And, and yeah, the yields came off, but they very quickly shot back up to 5%. So there's kind of a, an unfolding potential crisis going on there that maybe is a, a, a shot over the bow of, of 
problems uh, that will permeate through the system. We don't certainly want to be a gloom monger here, but these are the kinds of things you got to watch out for when the system is as bloated, overvalued, as and potentially as unstable as it is. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you guys are named New Harbor. You're you're in Massachusetts, which is actually where I originally grew up. Um, so there's a lot of sailing influence uh, on, on that state. And you know, there's a storm warning, right, where, you know, you, you have these indicators uh, that tell the sailors, hey, you know what, like, if you're going out at sea today, you got to be you got to be real careful. And you know, there are degrees of those storm, storm warnings. And I think that that's sort of what's called for here. And I think what you just did there, John, which is like, hey, we don't we hate to sound repetitive. We don't want to sound like we're negative, but we are just looking at the activity out there and saying, hey, you know, it's ramping up to a higher degree of risk here. And so that you know requires us to tell people, hey, we know we've said be conservative in the past, but this might be a time to be even more conservative. And look, there's nothing, I think, scarier. Uh, to any of the folks that run our system than a meltdown or a breakage um, in the credit markets. Because uh, that is that is the big enchilada. That is a thing that that graces the entire world economy. And um, to see uh, that market, you know, already kind of, like you said, sort of in revolt in, in the UK, that's a big deal in and of itself. It's definitely going to have implications outside of the UK. But, you know, we're all worried about that happening in other countries. And, and obviously here in America, it could happen here, too. And that's what we need to be keeping our eye on. Um, I just think about the implications of that. And we don't have time to go through all of them. But like interest rates in uh, the UK have gone up dramatically over this year, as you mentioned, John. Um, and uh, they're continuing to go higher as we speak. And, and, and I think they've gone from something like I, sorry, mortgages, I think, have gone from something like 2% uh, to over 6% there in a relatively short period of time. And you know, the, the U.S. is doing pretty much similarly. The big difference, though, is that we have these 30-year fixed mortgages uh, in America where you lock your mortgage in and you have that for the next 30 years. In the U.K., the vast majority of mortgages they're fixed 25-year mortgages, but they're the, the fixed part is fixed only for uh, usually, I think, a couple of years um, to four or five years, and then it becomes a variable after that. Most people then go out and get a new new 25-year mortgage again. But the point is, is there's a ton of mortgages that are coming up now for renewal, or, or, they're, or they're, they're, sorry, their fixed part is ending. They're now going into the variable portion where they're jumping from a 2% rate to a 6% rate overnight, right? Let alone the people that are buying a new brand new house at, at, at rates. So you just got to ask yourself, like, oh, my God, can the real estate market absorb that big of a jump that quickly? And that's just one of the shockwaves going through there. All right. We talked a few weeks ago about the big risk when that started breaking out was that it was going to spring the entire pension system, uh, pension fund system down in the UK because they were over leveraged. And uh, these these rise in guilt rates were were threatening to take the vast majority of them down. So we still have, you know, we're still early on and seeing how this game is going to play out. But to your point, John. You know, it could be really big. I'm not trying to sell fear, but I think I'm just trying to tell people, like, if you haven't been sitting up and paying attention, like, this is the time to start really sitting up and paying attention because the implications of the repercussions that could happen here based upon the, the direction we're seeing, the stakes are getting higher and higher. All right. Um, with that, um, we'll have to leave it so that, um, Mike, you and I can go down to the floor and, and greet the folks waiting for us down there. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Um, if you 
uh, are interested in getting you know my top takeaways from the interview with uh, with Mark. We are continuing the practice of me writing up my notes uh, of those takeaways. So if you want to read those, just go to wealthion.com slash Adam's notes. And if you can, let us know in the comments if you're finding those notes of use. I, I am hearing from folks that they are, um, but they do take a fair amount of time. So if you want me to keep doing them, just make sure you let me know that you want me to keep doing them. Um, and then uh, obviously, if you like seeing great guests like Mark on the channel, uh, please help support the channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, markets, you know, whatever they do from here, guys, it's going to be interesting, both, I think, in the direction, but also, again, in the, the implications of what the moves have. So whatever they are over the next week, we'll be back here next week together, making sense of it for people. Uh, Mike and John, thanks so much for joining me for yet another week here. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks again, Adam, and um, we will see you soon. In fact, we'll see you down at the event. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Adam, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, guys, have fun at the conference. Thanks, John. Wish you were here. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free, and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA, but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.